But it is very damaging to think that other people think that you are a spy. You become very suspicious of your own relationship to other people because you know that other people are spying on you. You don't know exactly how people are going to look at you. And that's really corrosive and damaging to anybody's sense of self-worth. Welcome back aboard M-Train, a podcast where we look at the ways Muslims are surveilled and the conversations around abolition. In this episode, we talk with Mustafa Bayoumi, author and professor at Brooklyn College on the long life of profiling some 20 years after 9-11. Welcome, Mustafa. It's great to be here and it's nice to be back on air with you, Ahmed. So we're here in this moment where it's been 20 years since 9-11 and there's been a lot of acknowledgement that the blanket surveilling of Muslims, the profiling of them has been unethical and ineffective, yet in many ways Muslims are still regarded as suspicious and still subjected to surveillance. Why do you think that society views us this way and why does the kind of surveillance state apparatus still continue in engaging in the surveillance despite its ineffectiveness? Well, I mean, I think these are old habits die hard to fall on a cliché. But it's, these are institutional habits. These are institutional ways of thinking. And not only that, but there's also a kind of cultural longevity to the idea that Muslims are inherently a dangerous population. So put those two together, and I think you get the mix of something that is, you know, not just durable, but damaging to Muslim communities in particular, but really just to the idea of a civil society in general. I mean, when you can make a whole segments of your society based on other criteria, based here it's religion, but it could be race or it could be, it could be uh, national origin, it could be any number of things. And when you make that, you know, the, the kind of criteria for launching investigations, then you're damaging yourself because you're going to not only, as you say, not only are you going to miss some of the most important things that are staring you right in the face, but in fact, you're also limiting your own imagination and you're limiting your own ethical being in the world at the same time. As our sort of professor in this conversation, in this series, um, I was wondering if I could ask you some quick definitional questions and you could help us and our listeners understand some of the terms we're going to use here. So first off, what is profiling and what is surveillance? I would define profiling as the way in which the, in our case, we're talking about the government. But in fact, it's not exclusive to government. You could say that advertising agencies are engaged in profiling or social media companies are engaged in profiling. But it is when a single characteristic that is used to define you. And that characteristic is not used only to define you, but in fact, to determine a policy that is then used upon you. Surveillance comes with desire to prosecute and even persecute, right? Surveillance comes with suspicion attached. Surveillance in that way is anti-human because all of us are engaged in multiple ways of being. And surveillance is looking for you as only one thing. You are, as a, as a being, you are the manifestation of suspicion. That's how surveillance understands the essence of you. It can be both overt and covert. You know, sometimes it's really useful for the state to be watching your activities without you knowing it. And sometimes it's useful to the state for them to watch your activities while you know it. Because both ways 
will have consequences for how you act. When the state is watching you while you know it, then you feel like you're being surveilled and your behavior may change as a result. I'm thinking specifically of something like the panopticon that you see developed in Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. This was a prison architectural system where the guard would sit in the middle of the prison and you would never be able to see as a prisoner whether the guard was watching you or not. But there was always a chance that the guard was watching you and therefore you always felt like you were being watched. So you would alter your behavior in the off chance that you might be being watched at any given moment. I feel that I was in my, you know, religion seminars from college. I was remembering, you know, the panopticon and all that. It actually does have a very religious origin, right? Because especially like, you know, if you think about people like St. Augustine, for example, right? Feeling like they're, they're always under the watchful eye of God. So the fact that your behavior should be changed because you're always under the watchful eye of God. Well, what happens in the modern secular state is God, in a sense, is replaced by the watchful eye of the government. And yet I think it's hard to argue that the government is always operating in your own best interests. Observation, on the other hand, is a way of seeing you as an entire human being, or at least it has that opportunity within it. Observation is the only way that we can live through life. Observation is the way of encountering the new. Observation is a way of living a joyful life. Surveillance is a way of limiting one's point of view into darkness. Another term that you have mentioned in your work and is sort of this more modern form is surveillance capitalism. Can you define that? There's a whole industry that is oriented around surveillance, not just the act of surveillance, but the results of surveillance. I mean, every element of our society, almost every element of our society today will be oriented around some level of surveillance capitalism, whether it be from uh, everything that we do on Facebook to the movies that we're watching on Netflix. All of that stuff gets categorized and is found in databases here and there. And as we know from the Edward Snowden leaks, a lot of it is actually, even though they will say that none of it's personalized, often it can be looked at on on an individual level, on on a microscopic level. All of that is part of the capitalist system of our society and the ways in which capitalism and militarism, particularly in American society, are so closely connected should be a cause for concern. So in that book we mentioned in the introduction, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? You spoke to young Muslims and Arabs who were surveyed. Can you talk about what it was like then and how it is now 12 years later? Have you followed up with any of those individuals that you spoke with? When I wrote How Does It Feel to Be a Problem, there were many instances of young men and women coming up to me, especially the young men, telling me that they felt that they were being followed by the NYPD. And there were times when I was skeptical It seemed that there was a lot of people who were telling me things and I wasn't always sure that it was not just a figment of their imagination. I remember one story in particular, a young man telling me how he was convinced that there was a car that was following him for months. He had the name and the license plate and the brand of the car. And it took me some time to realize that I think that he was right and I was wrong for being skeptical. I think it's completely feasible that There were whole swaths of the young Muslim American community within New York City that was under a kind of extraordinary level of surveillance. There's a way in which when you are an oppressed population, I don't think that you become naive about how power functions. The names of the policies may change, but 
there's a long history to tell us that we should be skeptical of believing authority, especially when authority is being challenged. I think one element of this is very clear. Not long after the revelations that the NYPD who had been spying on Muslim communities in this blanket surveillance program came out, after that story came out, we saw a report in the New York Times months later, maybe it was a year, a little over a year later. And in that report, the report stated that there were young people after the surveillance program had been supposedly concluded who were still being press ganged by the NYPD because they were looking at minor, often drug infractions, minor crimes. And there, this was a way to try to push them into becoming informants on their community, to working with the NYPD. And then I don't think that we should be so naive to think that just because they've been exposed that they are no longer operative. I think it's worth talking about also how the agencies have learned and traded information with each other. The NYPD is learning from the FBI. The FBI is learning from the NYPD. And then one also th- other thing that I want to mention based on your kind of suggestion of almost disbelief is how this also happened to pretty much mosques across the country, right? In our own mosque growing up in Michigan, we felt that there were some unusual characters showing up, asking pointed questions, and then vanishing. And it was a, it was a kind of a tension of, of whether, you know, there's this kind of like welcoming nature to mosques. In theory, they're supposed to welcome outsiders. But then when you have people coming in, asking these questions and putting you into sort of potentially compromising situations, it really puts into question a lot about the community. And I thought one interesting thing that you mentioned was, I was reading a piece of yours where you mentioned that you attended a closed-door meeting between the FBI and some local Arab Muslim leaders. And they basically asked the imam that if he encountered like another imam who is recruiting people to go overseas and learn how to carry out jihad, would would the imam report him? So this question of like, being asked to spy on your own community, the informant question. I'm curious, is it, has it ever been shown to be effective at all? Or is it just, as you said, purely institutional? It's just a beast amongst itself moving forward because you know a mandate came down that we need more information about Yemenis or Pakistanis or, or Syrians. Yes, that example that you're talking about of the imam being asked by the FBI if he would be willing to report someone if that person was fomenting jihad in a dangerous way. I see it more as a kind of ideological litmus test. And this is the kind of McCarthyite position, right? What is an imam supposed to say in front of the authorities? No, I would not report somebody. Of course not. You you can't, you know, you can't say such things. And so therefore in front of the authorities and without risking your own, you know, your own freedom, your own liberty. At Brooklyn College where I teach, We found out several years ago, also after the NYPD revelations had emerged and that the NYPD had then said that the demographics unit that was the innocuous name that they had given to one of their surveillance arms of the NYPD had been shut down. After that, it had been proclaimed. We discovered at Brooklyn College that, in fact, there was a a young woman who was presenting herself as a secular Turkish woman, and she had ingratiated herself with the other young Muslim American women on campus and was spending a great deal of time with them all. And only later did it become apparent that, in fact, she worked for the NYPD. And in fact, she was essentially spying on these young women as well. 
Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I know some of the young women who were in her orbit while she was at Brooklyn College. And what their response was to me very interesting because one of the things that I heard repeatedly from, from several people was this fear that not just that they were on the periphery or really at the center of being spied. In fact, the fear was that then everybody might think that they are the ones who are spying on other people. You are a professor of English. That book, I think, was such a revelation for many of us because of the way in which it was written beautifully through their perspective. But also, it's, it's sort of a, it's an oral history. Can you talk a little bit about that project and what made you start doing it in that format and engaging with these issues at all, for, for that matter? There was a sense right after 9-11 of the catastrophe of it all and the, the pain and the suffering that it brought, certainly on the national level. But there wasn't that much attention being paid to the ways in which it was changing the lives of Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, Sikh Americans. Our lives were being radically, dramatically altered by these events. There came a point just a few months following 9-11 when I realized that every Muslim person that I knew had either been directly visited by or knew somebody who had been visited by the FBI. These were ordinary stories that we started sharing with each other following 9-11. There came a point where I thought I should maybe try to document that because I wanted to make sure that that was not lost to history. And I thought one way of doing that, one effective way of doing that would be to try to tell that moment through the lives of young people because young people were living through that moment when they're also at the same time trying to get a bearing on their own sense of identities and who they are and what their values are and what their differences are from their peers or their parents and that sort of thing. And so the other thing that I think is really interesting in the years since is the way in which we talked about how the past of surveillance of other communities was kind of applied to us. You've written also about how the surveillance of Muslim immigrants and Black American Muslims has also, some of that infrastructure has now been used in this like kind of war that against undocumented immigrants, which has really stepped up. You know, for instance, you've spoken about how ICE is paying for $21 million for access to databases from CLEAR, which are basically online databases, online surveillance, which wasn't an ecosystem that really existed in 2001, but now, you know, a lot of our data is online. So can you talk about this modern moment of surveillance that we're in and how the internet is kind of accelerating some of some of the government's ability to access us? It's interesting because history, I think, speeds forward at a pace that is just increasing by the year. And so the reason I say that is because it was perhaps... 10 years ago or so, there were these reports about how the United States was spying on specific members of the Muslim community through their social media accounts. And then we learned from the Edward Snowden revelations that, in fact, that then became something that was true for pretty much all Americans at the same time, this sort of like big vacuum that was just being able to suck up all of this information. I think it's important to see that what's happened to Muslim American communities over the last 20 years also serves as a kind of prototype for the larger society. 
And so that's also another reason why it's really important that we all pay attention to what's happening to us as individual groups and even as the most uh, vulnerable groups, not just because we should, we should care for each other, but also because, in fact, our own liberty is at stake in that same in that same game. And before I let you go, as a result of your work or just your lived experience, have you ever felt surveilled? Have you ever had any pushback community surveillance as a result of your work being reported for the things that you've said and done around this issue? I remember when I first began writing, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? I felt that because that I could possibly be seen as perhaps some kind of informant or undercover operative from the very beginning, because I did not live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where much of the work that I was doing was taking place. So I would come armed with a lot of the articles that I had already written and with my associations with people like Edward Said. I felt that I had to prove my bona fides to people just to make sure that I wasn't seen as being from the man. When the AP revelations were published, the police department then began a program of denial. And then once the denial started, then the AP reporters and some other enterprising reporters started releasing documents that they had that proved that the NYPD program was, in fact, real. And one of those documents talked about the fact that they were spying on student groups and on a professor of Middle Eastern studies at Brooklyn College. And so immediately, there are actually Brooklyn College is a fairly shall I say, white institution at this faculty level. So there aren't that many people who are of Middle Eastern background or who teach things related to the Middle East at Brooklyn College, certainly uh, far fewer back then even than today. So immediately, I wondered if it was me that they were talking about. My friends all wondered if it was me that they were talking about. And in fact, a columnist for the New York Times called me and asked if it was me that they were talking about, as did an AP reporter called me on a separate occasion too and asked me if they thought it was me that they were talking about. I think every Muslim American knows that dealing with any kind of border issue is always fraught with all kinds of anxieties. There were times when I was on you know, some kind of list and then there are times when I'm not on some kind of list. And so those moments have always made me think and wonder too. At one point is my name circulating within this sort of broader surveillance ecosphere. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal Yakbar, and produced by Shereen Barghi. It is edited by Karim Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV and follow me at RadBrownDads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Dawadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit brickartsmedia.org slash bricktv. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening.